0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Today we're talking about a tremendously interesting man. John McLaughlin was a physician, fur trader, businessman, peacekeeper, and major administrator of a huge swath of the Pacific Northwest, from San Francisco to British Columbia. He was also a devoted husband, father, and Catholic.
0: He was a big man in many ways. First, he was physically large at six foot four and powerfully built. He had a full head of hair that he wore long, and by 40 years old, it was stark white. He also had a temper, was known to be impulsive, but he was fair and compassionate, and was never afraid to do the thing he thought right, regardless of the consequences.
1: He made his name as the chief factor of the Columbia District of the Hudson's Bay Company between 1824 and 1846. But let's back up a bit and talk about where John McLaughlin came from.
0: So John McLaughlin was born in 1784 in riviere du loup Quebec. He was the second of seven children to what we would call working-class parents who were Irish, Scottish, and French-Canadian and Catholic. He was baptized at the Catholic parish, but then he was mostly educated by his very anti-Catholic Presbyterian grandfather. So he wasn't fully raised Catholic, but he also didn't become anti-Catholic. He was apprenticed to a Quebec physician at 13 years old, and when he was 19, he successfully passed the exam and received his license to practice medicine. That year, he signed on with the Northwest Company as a surgeon and an apprentice clerk.
1: The Northwest Company was one of two major trading companies that basically governed most of Canada and parts of America. The other was the Hudson's Bay Company. These massive companies were chiefly known for trading furs, but in the territories that the British government controlled but hadn't yet established a governing structure, the task of enforcing British law was given to the leaders of those companies.
0: Right. The fur traders were going out into the wilderness because that's where the animals with fur were. So when they went out, they established trading posts, fortified towns, and other infrastructure that comes with civilization. The government didn't have compelling interest in settling most of those areas, so they would basically empower the companies to enforce the British law in the communities that would spring up.
1: And it was to one of these, Fort William, on the northern shore of Lake Superior that John McLaughlin was initially sent.
0: Yes, while there he did practice medicine, he also served as a clerk, organizing the shipping and harvesting of furs. In 1814, he was made a partner in the company.
1: And he got married for the first time.
0: Yes, with his first wife, he had a son, Joseph, but it seems his first wife died in about 1809. About a year later, he married for the second time to a native lady who was the widow of another fur trader. Her name was Marguerite. She already had four children, three daughters and a son. John and Marguerite had four children together, including a son named John Jr.,
1: It's important to note that since there weren't ministers or priests available at these outposts, the marriages were generally civil marriages, and that is what the McLaughlins was for many years. In
0: 1821, the Northwest Company merged with the Hudson's Bay Company, keeping the name of the latter, and McLaughlin was instrumental in negotiating that merger. And this was where his career really took off. Within a few years, about his 40th birthday, he was named Chief Factor of the Columbia District of the Hudson's Bay Company.
1: Now, this was a significant promotion and an impressive responsibility, but what does it mean?
0: Well, within the Hudson's Bay Company, the main officers were called Factors. They were the ones who conducted the business affairs of the company, and since the company existed to conduct business affairs, they were the main movers and shakers, the main power brokers in their designated regions. And he was made Chief Factor of the Columbia District, which covered the entire area on the west coast of North America That was south of Alaska, north of San Francisco, and west of the Rocky Mountains. So it was an enormous area that he was made chief factor over. The base of operations was along the Columbia River, which today forms the border between Washington State and Oregon.
1: To give a little more of the geography for those not familiar with the region, not too far upstream from the mouth of the Columbia, the Willamette River empties into the Columbia. The Willamette River runs through the Willamette Valley, a fertile valley that runs north-south along the western edge of Oregon. The majority of the population of Oregon lives in that valley, and McLaughlin's story involves that area also.
0: Yes, but that comes later. So John and Marguerite and their children headed west and arrived in present-day Oregon in 1824. John McLaughlin's job was simple, make money for the Hudson's Bay Company. The Columbia District had only been in the hands of the HBC for two years and hadn't done well as yet. McLaughlin's job was to change that. He had to establish new Pacific trade routes, fur trading outposts, and trade routes along the coast, as well as keep the peace among the British subjects, the American settlers, and the natives, plus try to increase the number of British settlers in the area.
1: It was important to increase the number of British settlers because Britain and the U.S. both claimed the land— what the Americans called the Oregon country. Yes. In
0: 1818, the two nations had signed a treaty which set the national border between the U.S. and what is today known as Canada at the 49th parallel run east-west between Minnesota and the Rocky Mountains. But west of the Rockies, they couldn't agree. So in that 1818 treaty, they decided to set aside the question of that wild and unsettled country and deal with it later. Different settlements from those two countries would be autonomous little pockets of their home countries And be largely self governing. But unlike the Americans, who came out in mostly small, unconnected groups, the British came out organized under the umbrella of the HBC, and that made John McLaughlin the most important man out there.
1: He was suited for it, too. His superior in the HBC, George Simpson, the governor of the entire northern department of the HBC, described McLaughlin as a man of strict honor and integrity, but a great stickler for rights and privileges, and that he possessed an ungovernable, violent temper, and turbulent disposition, which often led to conflict.
0: Conflict isn't always a bad thing, and Simpson may have only made it sound like a bad thing because he didn't appreciate it when McLaughlin disagreed with him and let him know it.
1: Well, that certainly became an issue, as we'll see. Yes. So
0: McLaughlin set about making the Columbia District better. He moved the headquarters from Fort George, modern-day Astoria, Oregon, to Fort Vancouver on the north bank of the Columbia River, so in present-day Washington state. Fort Vancouver flourished under his leadership. By 1836, it was a bustling metropolis of 800, making it the largest settlement on the West Coast. He did it without any official military presence, keeping the peace by the force of his own personality and his imposing physical size. He also established many more outposts along the coast, from Juneau, Alaska, to the Yerba Buena Peninsula, modern-day San Francisco. He maintained good relationships with the natives, knowing that to do otherwise would make it impossible to be successful at trapping and fur trading, and he was very fair and compassionate in dealing with disputes between British subjects, American settlers, and the natives. He also made enormous strides in establishing new Pacific trade routes, plus a more prosperous maritime trade along the coast.
1: And all of this greatly increased the profits of the HBC.
0: Yes, quite. In 1836, one particular ship bound for London was laden with a cargo of furs worth $380,000. That's more than $13.2 million today. In the fall of that year, Governor Simpson recommended and the Council of the Northern Department of the HBC approved a resolution praising him and his work and giving him a raise. He was the driving force behind the emergence of the Pacific Northwest as a major economic and population center. In 1841, he was even made a knight by Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace.
1: But while he was respected and praised, and there were no Indian wars during his tenure, all of his tactics weren't peaceful and cooperative.
0: No, it was still a dangerous place to be, and some people only respect force. So while he did not tolerate mistreatment of the natives, his own wife was a native after all, He did not tolerate savagery and attacks. When some natives killed some HBC employees, he sent out a raiding party which destroyed two native villages, killing about 20, and they destroyed all of the food and every canoe they could find.
1: He also took significant exception when an Anglican minister insulted his wife Marguerite, calling her a female of notoriously loose character. McLaughlin beat the man severely in the public square.
0: Seems reasonable. He also took a harsh line with business competition. It was very important to keep the American fur trading companies out of the region, so when he caught wind that some Americans were looking to establish themselves, he had his trappers go around and harvest every beaver they could find so the Americans would find a fur desert and be discouraged.
1: Keeping the Americans discouraged had political motives, too.
0: Yes. Since the U.S. and Britain were in a sort of stalemate over actual control of the region— Everyone kind of knew that the question would be determined by who had more settlers in which part of the region. So McLaughlin and Simpson tried to encourage more British to move out there, and when Americans came over the mountains and arrived at Fort Vancouver, McLaughlin would encourage them to go do their thing south of the Columbia River in the previously mentioned Willamette Valley.
1: During this time, he had also staked out a personal claim in the Willamette Valley, near the waterfall, a place where he would eventually build a home.
0: Yes, which was interesting because he kind of knew from early on that holding on to the land south of the 49th parallel was a losing battle, that the Americans would settle the area and his holdings would eventually be part of the United States.
1: Right, and because this was the clear trajectory of things, His reception of Americans who made it to Fort Vancouver was sort of the beginning of the end for McLaughlin with the Hudson's Bay Company.
0: Yes, there were many, Governor Simpson included, who thought he treated the Americans too well, that he was too hospitable. They thought that maybe if he were less so, fewer would come out, and he disagreed and kept doing his thing. He had a twofold reason, which he wrote about later in life when all of these issues came to a head. He said, quote, If I had acted differently to what I have and refused assistance to the first American immigrants, Fort Vancouver would have been taken and the company's property in it and the company's business in the department destroyed, and for which robbery and outrage the company would never have recovered a farthing. If I had refused them assistance, they would have starved, the world would have raised a hue and cry against the company, and the succeeding immigrations would have eaten the crops the farmers had on hand, and they would, as a last resource, have taken Vancouver.
1: So essentially, he recognized he was between a rock and a hard place. Treating the immigrants poorly had many negative consequences in the eyes of the world and in practical terms, while treating them well risked the ire of his superiors and risked betraying the British geopolitical cause in the region.
0: And his generosity and compassion became known. One immigrant said, we had eaten the last of our provisions at our last camp and were told that we could get plenty at the fort with or without money that the old doctor never turned people away hungry.
1: Another said, Had it not been for the kindness of this excellent man, many of us would have suffered greatly.
0: And a third wrote, Many were relieved from perishing by the benevolence of the Hudson's Bay Company. In
1: 1843 alone, he gave out $35,000 in advances, not expecting repayment. That's more than $1.2 today.
0: Among the many American immigrants were missionaries, lots of missionaries. Among them were two Catholic priests, François Blanchet and Modeste Demers.
1: Demers and Blanchet. I remember those names from episode 18 of American Catholic History about Archbishop Charles Sagers. Blanchet was the first bishop of Oregon City and Demers the first bishop of Victoria Island. Yes,
0: and they had an impact on McLaughlin because after they arrived, he returned to the Catholic faith of his birth and had his marriage to his wife of many years solemnized. He would be as unabashed as a Catholic as he was anything else for the rest of his life.
1: And that became another reason some began to sour on him. Yes,
0: anti-Catholicism had reached the Pacific Northwest, and even though he had been the most important man in everyone's success out there, that didn't protect him.
1: That also points to a problem. When you're the man in charge and people's fortunes and livelihoods depend on your decision— Even if you are incredibly fair in your dealings, there will be people who believe they were treated poorly. Many such people began to see opportunities to ding his character.
0: Another factor was the collapse of the fur market. Silk had overtaken beaver fur as the most popular material for men's hats, so the profits were beginning to shrink, and the bosses were less happy with his performance.
1: Perhaps the final nail in the coffin of his being chief factor was a visit by Governor Simpson in 1842. Right.
0: Simpson came to Vancouver to assess things, and on this visit, he ordered McLaughlin to close many of the coastal outposts and move the headquarters of the Columbia Division well north into British Columbia. McLaughlin took it as a repudiation of all he had accomplished. The two got into heated arguments for months, including on a joint business trip to Hawaii. When his son John Jr. was killed in an alcohol-fueled fight in Alaska in April of that year, John Sr. accused Governor Simpson of only doing a perfunctory investigation of the crime.
1: By the accounts, it seems McLaughlin may have been right.
0: And then, lastly, in 1843, a petition was sent to Washington by American residents of the Willamette Valley that told of exaggerated, twisted, and simply false charges against McLaughlin. They wanted him gone. Their motivation was greed. They knew they were in the political ascendancy, and they wanted the land that McLaughlin and the HBC held. In 1845, the leadership of HBC, perhaps because it really was the right thing to do, perhaps as a way of pushing McLaughlin out the door, decided to break up the Columbia District and put different men in charge of the different parts. McLaughlin would no longer be solely in charge, but would have to consult with others to make decisions.
1: As predicted, this was a bridge too far from McLaughlin, He said in a letter, I have drunk and am drinking the cup of bitterness to the very dregs. And he tendered his resignation from the Hudson's Bay Company in 1846.
0: John and Marguerite and some of their kids, including some married and a widowed daughter, moved to the spacious two-story home he had built near the new town of Oregon City, which he had established and platted a few years prior. McLaughlin, through his land prospecting, owned a good portion of the town and its businesses. In 1846, the Oregon Treaty resolved the border question, and established the border we know today. Oregon City eventually became the territorial capital.
1: And McLaughlin continued to be the object of resentment and suspicion by those who lived around him. He owned too much, he was too powerful, he was a British subject, and had wielded British power. He was married to a Native woman, and he was Catholic.
0: So when the Oregon Territory was officially established in 1848, the question came up on how to settle land claims from before enemies of McLaughlin managed to get language inserted into the Donation Land Claim Act that specifically deprived McLaughlin of most of his land holdings in Oregon. The act was passed and became law. It didn't matter that he had become a U.S. citizen as soon as he possibly could, nor did it matter that, when word of this unjust act reached the Willamette Valley, McLaughlin himself and many, many in the community wrote letters decrying the action. McLaughlin was formally deprived of his land.
1: And local officials, by and large, refused to enforce the law in any real way. McLaughlin was able to conduct business on his land, but he was unable to sell any of it and realize a profit.
0: But he didn't do what many might have, just say to heck with everyone. He kept being an awesome person who just couldn't stop. He built houses, sawmills, and gristmills to help the continued influx of immigrants. He built a canal around the falls on the Willamette River at his own expense. He gave away 300 lots of land for private and public use, including land given for a Catholic school and a Catholic church, as well as Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, and Congregational churches. He even donated land for a city jail.
1: In recognition of his great humanitarian and charitable efforts, he was made a Knight of St. Gregory by Pope Gregory Sixteenth in 1847.
0: And he served as Mayor of Oregon City in 1851, winning 44 of 66 votes.
1: John McLaughlin died at 72 in 1857, a man pushed aside, a victim of his own success, having made the Pacific Northwest an economic powerhouse and peaceful population center. A few years after his death, his land was returned to his heirs, and historical societies began to sing his praises all over the land. Schools, roads, events, and even a mountain in southern Oregon were named in his honor. His house is a National Historic Landmark, And in 1957, the centennial of his death, the Oregon legislature officially recognized him as the father of Oregon. But the more important last word in the life and story of John McLaughlin were his own last words. As he lay dying, his nephew asked in French, Comment allez-vous? How are you going? John McLaughlin replied, Adieu, to God. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out and give us a five-star rating and a good review. And please support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com give helps make sure American Catholic History and all the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about John McLaughlin, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic history or follow Starquest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noel Heaster Crow
0: and I'm Tom Crow.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic history on Starquest.